3: I'm Scott Wapner and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, John, thanks. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the critical week for stocks with earnings about to get underway. We will debate how much is really riding on those reports with our investment committee and joining me for the hour today. Joe Terranova. Degas Wright is the chief investment officer of Decatur Capital. Liz Young is the head of investment strategy at SoFi. And Steve Weiss is here as well. Let's go to the wall, check the market. Stocks are coming off a week of record highs. Here we go. We open a little bit negative across the board. Dow's good for about a 34-point loss. NASDAQ's under some pressure, too. There's your interest rate complex. 167 is where we currently trade on the 10-year. Should also let you know that right now, CEOs from several major semiconductor companies are taking part in a virtual summit. On the chip shortage the president expected to make an appearance we may hear from him sometime this hour in the meantime we turn our attention as always to your money a big week for earnings kicking off the banks get things going on wednesday it might very well be a pivotal week so liz young i turn to you first congratulations on your new gig it's good to have you with us today Thank how you. much is riding Thank on this week
1: i think there's a lot riding on this week if we look at the value trade and if we look at the cyclical trade because as we all know Financials are a traditional value sector so people are watching that but what I want everybody to remember is that ready or not the recovery is coming and that doesn't necessarily mean that there have to be some sectors that win and some sectors that lose I do think as we move through the rest of the year we are at an inflection point but maybe not the one that Jerome Powell talked about the inflection point that I would be watching is the one where we have to hand off from policy from fiscal policy and monetary policy back to fundamentals. And that's where earnings start to matter. So, so, Steve, so what I want to see this week is guidance.
3: Okay, interesting. Steve, Steve Weiss, you know, the, the market's already had a big move, right, in, into earnings. So expectations are high. Does that put more now riding on, on this week? Is it, is it truly a critical week, given where we've come to?
4: Yes, it is. I mean, you're... you're <laughs> You're anticipating, as you mentioned, that companies are going to blow out earnings. But not only that, they're going to raise their guidance going forward. And that very, very, way, that very well may happen. I actually think it will, but it'll be selective, not all will. So I think that that's going to continue to mark going, at least support it. What's more important right now is the immediacy of inflation. By that, I mean CPI tomorrow. That could impact the market. Now, it'd be unusual to see the flow through that we saw in PPI last week, which was a very hot number, going to CPI immediately. But it could happen. So the eyes are going to be more on inflation than they are going to be on earnings, in my view. But you can't have earnings numbers disappoint because that would take you down without question. You'd have to reset Because right now the market's trading with a lot of complacency, as we see in the VIX, that we're not going to see any type of sell-off in the market. And I think that's just completely wrong.
3: Well, it just matters, Joe, how much of the good news, the expected good news, is already baked in. Right. Because we do expect that earnings are going to be good and that the outlooks are are going to be good. And that's what Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson's talking about today. How much of the reopening has already been discounted by the markets? He asks, quote, in our view, the breakdown of small caps and cyclicals are potential early warning signs that the actual reopening of the economy will be more difficult than many believe. That raises the issue of complacency. Weiss mentioned where the VIX is below eight, uh, 18. Uh, How about that?
5: It's interesting because I wonder, Scott, is the VIX suggesting complacency or is the VIX suggesting a calm environment? And if it's suggesting a calm environment, then the bullishness is going to extend itself. Uh, I fully anticipated that you would see the recovery of technology in the formation of the market coming into earnings. I think now the sequence of the way... S&P earnings are going to be reported are favorable for investors you're going to hear first from financials there is going to be a tremendous amount of reserve release there's going to be a tremendous amount of fee income that was generated both by the underwriting of SPACs and the refinancing in the mortgage market so I like that sequence and I think the bullishness is going to continue real quick to uh, Liz's point on guidance unless we're going to be talking about the impact for a rising corporate tax rate and what that's going to do to 2022 EPS, how could any of the guidance not be bullish uh, it, from the communication from CFOs yeah, and right? CEOs?
3: Yeah, because I, I don't think you're going to get much of that yet at all. It, that, that feels like so far no. down the road, you know, um, that I don't know that we're going to get much concrete on that. Digas, how do you see it? What's riding on this
6: week? Yeah, so I think that the uh, accommodation by the Federal Reserve is really setting the tone that inflation is not going to be a problem because they're going to allow inflation to run because of the need to get the unemployment rates down because you want to get the unemployment rate between 4 and 5%. So what I see is that going forward, we're going to be focused more on earnings. Uh, we had a great ability to pull back and reduce operating expenses, which is going to mean that Profit margins will improve. We're going to see greater number of earnings surprises. So we really feel that this is more of a company focus versus a macro focus.
3: All right, Liz. So here's the story. Expectations we know are rising and rising substantially. More evidence of that today. Bank of America, they raised their earnings estimates. They now take S&P EPS to 185. So, you know, I I put a 23 multiple on that, which gets you to 42.55. You know, estimates for price targets are are pretty up there. That seems to be around where people think that the the market can go. I'm wondering whether you think that's too rich, 23 times uh, where earnings are. You've got more optimism from J-PAL, right, last night on 60 Minutes. He says growth is going to be very strong. There's not going to be any rate hike anytime soon. That's pretty much what he told Sarah last week in that exclusive conversation that she had with the panel. Jeremy Siegel told us last week we're only in the third inning of the boom. So optimism continues to get ratcheted up seemingly every day.
1: As it should. And and I think the question the big question that people keep asking is is this a speculative bubble Are valuations so high that we're in this bubble. No I don't think it is because we're not speculating on whether or not the economy is going to roar back or whether or not the economy is going to reopen it's going to happen. And there are fundamental legs to that story as you mentioned the Fed can and will wait to raise rates so there's not this impetus coming later this year at least I don't see one coming later this year where they're going to scare us and raise rates. Earnings, I think, are going to beat estimates. I mean, street estimates right now are somewhere between 176, 177. If you take them up to 185 at that target, the S&P is fair valued. So it's not overvalued. And I do think that a higher multiple is okay in a situation where we're about to start creating new GDP growth, new jobs. We're going to have corporations roar back at the end of this year and consumers start to deploy all of the savings, which I also think has been underestimated.
3: Yeah. It's kind of hard to find the negativity. I mean, Mike Santoli's been looking at that. Mike, you sort of take a look at whether we're in the quote unquote all in phase of the rally. Like, don't tell me anymore how hated this, this rally is, right?
2: Right, that's pretty much been swept away, Scott. I would agree with that. And, you know, I would say we're pretty close to all in. We're basically investors being pretty fully exposed to the the good fundamental story through stocks right now now if you look at things like flows uh, close to six hundred billion dollars uh, into equity funds since the election a short interest has had the biggest decline in 12 months uh, pretty much ever at least in the last 40 years uh, you have all the surveys that optimism uh, is in the top 10 percent of historical readings. Uh, equity exposure, if you look at uh, retail accounts, is also at multi-decade high. So all that stuff put in the mix says, OK, we get it. People are in. So I do think it takes away that idea that there is a tremendous reservoir of underinvested or uninvested uh, incremental money that's about to come into the market. Now, that's that being said, that doesn't mean that people can't stay, and it doesn't mean that the fundamentals can't come through or that bull markets... Uh, that are widely embraced can't continue to perform very well. So you have to make uh, those distinctions right there. One big group of one category of funds that is not arguably all in is, is those that really key off a lower volatility level to raise their exposure. That's happening right now. A lot of these systematic funds that were waiting for the VIX to break below 20 are just now ramping up their equity holding. So there are other pieces to this, uh, this story rather than just Uh, retail. But I think what it really tells you is, uh, is it a rational uh, embrace of the market? And none of us have ever really, uh, very few investors have been investing in a a GDP plus seven or eight percent environment. Uh, We have a 24 percent earnings growth coming in and the estimates continue to go higher over the course of the quarter, not lower. All those things seem very supportive, as do the credit market. So I don't want to say this is doomsday, but the risk reward looks different when the market's overbought and arguably, stocks are overlooked at okay, the moment.
3: It, it, OK, it's interesting you say that. I'm trying to think, and I'm writing this down as you're talking. What what are the potential catalysts to give you that next leg higher? And I say, OK, you just told me there's maybe the lack of fresh, real fresh money coming in because there's already heavy participation, right? Yeah. And then we already know everything. Like We already know that the, the Liz Young economy she just told us about yeah. and the Fed chair is going to be really strong. Right. So the, what, what do you have then?
2: Well, what you have, I mean, is the ongoingness of the good news, honestly. And that sounds like a cop out. But if, you, if I go back to 2017, uh, I think after that election, you had that massive ramp. Everyone decided it was going to be both tax cuts and a, a faster pace of nominal GDP growth. And I think in the spring of that year, you started to say, you know what, we all get it. People are all in. They had uh, pretty much high exposure. All the all the things I just laid out was sort of in the mix, but you had the market rotating very nicely. If Once group got overheated, it backed off. You would had buybacks really coming on heavy. That's probably going to uh, get back into the mix this year, probably already is. And, and again, it's just sort of the lack of negative shocks can keep things moving uh, in the right direction. I, I don't mean that that's what you want to bet on very heavily, but I think it's possible that uh, you can have relatively tame pullbacks along the way if, in fact things play through.
3: Joe, it's a key point that the fact that the news is going to be so good that none of the other stuff matters. All right. So you have a little less money coming into the market because people are getting more fully invested. Ah, The market already knows, you know, is expecting earnings expectations and the guidance to be good. But maybe things are going to be so explosive. Who cares? Stocks can still go up in that environment.
5: Yeah, that's 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 a fair point. And I think, you know, when we talk a lot about cash on the sidelines and those that aren't invested understand the right environment for them to be invested is when it is sunny skies and risk assets are pricing and trending higher. That's when uh, just the nature of critical mass tends to present itself where you've got people investing. I also think that where new money ultimately comes from is do any of us believe that if the economic optimism that we're all communicating about is going to continue, that this is the top for yields, that we think a 10-year treasury is gonna stop at 1.80, clearly we're gonna see a 2% print or therefore even higher. So within fixed income, I think flows of capital are going to come out of treasury funds and into the equity markets themselves. And lastly, Scott, while last week the S&P and the Dow Jones were making new highs. Other indexes around the world, like Brazil, like China, like Japan, they were not. So I think
3: uh, foreign flows will continue into domestic index funds. That's an interesting point, Mike, right? There are still, you know, to, to Mike Wilson's point about, you know, maybe some of the risks are being ignored about the reopen. That seems to be an everywhere else problem. Mm. And not a problem here, right? Yeah. We lead in, in vaccines here. That is only going to continue to be the case, m- most likely. So the, the picture's better here, it feels like, than almost everywhere else. And that's why the money's going to continue to flow here, maybe from some unlikely sources, but nonetheless, it's going to
2: come. Yeah, I don't doubt that. Um, although what's interesting is this subtle turn the market has had recently toward a more kind of quality focus or defensive uh, a little bit less about that reflation reopening trade in the last several weeks. I, I don't doubt that there will uh, the U.S. will still be a, uh, a net attractor uh, of capital. It's not always been the best leading indicator of of equity returns, though, when a huge incremental buyer of this market are, are foreign investors. But it's not in itself something that uh, stops a rally in its tracks. Yeah.
3: Either. I appreciate it, Mike, as yeah. always provocative. Uh, love the column. And I'm glad we had a chance Thanks. to talk about it. Weiss, I mean, you do think that if you look at the VIX and the VIX being this low, and look, it could move even lower, that it's not necessarily a good thing. There are some who say, okay, the VIX simply under 20, like Tom Lee, was a buy signal in and of itself. You seem to be suggesting now that a VIX under 18 is maybe a step back in maybe be a little bit concerned signal that there's just too much complacency now and that everybody is just expecting the market to go in one direction, underscored by the professor last week telling us he's never heard a more dovish Fed chair in, in his lifetime and that we're only in the third inning. And there's essentially nothing at all to worry about until the Fed makes its first move or it even signals that. And that's not coming for such a long time that who cares right now?
4: Yeah, so, so I do think when you see the VIX go to these levels, let's keep in mind that traditionally, if you go back a long, long time ago, you see a mid-teens on average. However, the recent averages are 20 to 22, and we've gotten a lot higher, as we know, during corrections. So I think if you talk about reversion to the mean, if you talk about where your biggest risk is, your biggest risk is the VIX going higher. So I am a little concerned about it. I really haven't changed my positioning. I did buy the VXX just as a placeholder, and that, of course, is betting VIX goes higher, as a placeholder while I work out protection on various sectors I'm involved in and individual stocks. But from an overall market viewpoint, I think the market can continue to work higher, again, with periods of volatility until September, which is traditionally the worst month of the year, and then into October. The Fed's not going to raise rates now. That's been very clear. They look... Unbelievably foolish, and lose all credibility if they raise rates with the next quarter or two. Doesn't mean the bond market won't raise rates by itself. No,
7: but the
3: most well, no
4: one o'clock today. The most worrisome, the most,
3: the most worrisome thing about raising rates may come from President Biden. He may be the thing to most worry about right. if you're an investor, not the Fed chair. The Fed chair, how many times does the Fed chair need to telegraph that they're not raising rates anytime soon, even if inflation goes up and it goes past their target? Who cares? They're going to let it run hot. He already said that, right? The biggest risk may be Biden and and getting the the tax increases through. And then investors are going to have to rethink the, the state of the market.
4: You see, I'm actually bullish about that because Manchin came out and he's taking a very, very firm stance on this. So if you see rates, corporate rates go to 25, I think you're okay. I think the market absorbed that last week. 28 or higher is a different situation. We're not going higher than 28. 25 is fine. When you get the spending, that's what's going to drive it. The infrastructure plan is going to drive the market. So I think that's very, very positive for the market, ultimately. Yeah. Could be a knee-jerk reaction down. Who knows? Well, but overall, we're going to move up. But just being – just let me finish this final point. Yeah. At 1 o'clock today, we get the results of the 10-year auction. I think they're actually going to be pretty good, and that Powell had a commercial to foreign buyers saying it's safe. Rates aren't going up anytime soon. Reiterated it again on 60 Minutes. So that'll take rates down. You'll see the 10-year reverse today, and rates will go lower. All right, so we need to talk
3: about positioning, right? And rates have been a critical story because as rates have gone up, the momentum trade has sort of gotten stopped in its tracks. Let's bring in our headliner now. Dubrovko Lakos is J.P. Morgan's head of equity strategy. He says the momentum unwind is all but over. Dubrovko, what makes you so sure?
8: Hey, uh, hey, Scott, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, look, we've we basically been seeing starting to say uh, – early March that uh, significant dose of this call it de-risking within growth uh, has happened. In other words, growth has, you know, decoupled from momentum, and we thought that the risk-reward for the growth rate generally is no longer as is ne- is, is no negative as anything is improving. So that could present like a tactical opportunity to step in and buy some growth. Parts of growth are also definitely looking more garby, growth at a reasonable price, but having said that, to, 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 for us, really, the message here was that you can now actually start to see a somewhat more broader participation in the market, where in addition to the cyclical side of the trade, you can start to see a little bit more life within, within, within the growth side. So we, we think, look, the, the, the two big themes, reflation and the reopening, are still alive. I, I know um, you know, stock leadership is not suggesting that the last two weeks, but we think they're, they're still alive, and we still need to basically go through... Uh, a significant portion of the reopening trade, which, by the way, abroad has has gotten delayed. So things have gotten pushed out a bit. I
3: just feel like it's hard to convince people that rates aren't going to continue to rise and that the momentum and growth trade could be hurt by that. If you believe what the Fed chair said, if you believe what Professor Siegel said last week to us, he thinks inflation is going to run hotter than than people think. Um, He still doesn't think that the Fed's going to do anything about it anytime soon but under that environment doesn't value and cyclical continue to outperform momentum
8: it, it should but here's the thing it should yes uh but my momentum right which i know everybody is so uh, zoned in on uh for the right reasons because momentum is typically where the money is going uh momentum is a dynamic uh factor it changes its exposure and momentum has been increasingly shifting away from growth uh into value so momentum is really more value reopening epicenter cyclical now than it was at any point in the last several years. And it's much less so growth uh, th- than what it was, say, six months ago or nine months ago. And so that's why I think that uh, the cyclical trade, yes, I think should remain the, the favorite one as-, as we continue to see upper pressure on, on yields and you continue to see this, uh, I call it reflationary impulse as we reopen. And momentum is already aligned with that. So I think that that's going to keep pushing momentum a little bit higher. I think the growth side... Which is decoupled from momentum, we're basically saying is no longer as risky. The risk reward is better, so it doesn't have to necessarily go through the same volatility that it went through, let's say throughout the month of February earlier this year.
3: But you think that earnings—you you think that earnings are going to be strong enough to justify a, a, a pretty hefty multiple, right? Because you yeah, got I- you got your earnings ex- expectations, your estimate at 185, and as we were talking earlier, you know your base case is 4,400 that's 24 times, that, that's
8: okay? Yeah, look, so again, uh, it, it all depends on where are you in the, in, 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 the, in the equity cycle. Are you in the earlier innings, are you in the later innings? And that, I think, justifies the different levels of multiples, where in the earlier innings, the Fed is still very, very supportive, and I think that generally justifies higher multiples uh, than, 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 than otherwise, right? So now, obviously, you fast-forward six months from now, if the Fed is talking about tapering, uh, we, we, we're we deeper, much deeper in the reopening trade, then the multiple story, I think, starts to change, and you likely will see compression. But I don't think we're there yet. But is that what you're telling me?
3: We have only six months to, to go until the Fed starts okay. to signal that they're going to have to raise rates soon because expectations for inflation have increased. Not is necess- it really that short of a period of time? Because that six months is nothing.
8: Not necessarily uh, raise rates, but I think the first move. That people are looking for is when will they give you that implicit signal on, on the tapering side? So that could come as early as June FOMC, or that could be September FOMC, or or Jackson Hole. Uh, so again, t- tough, tough to call, but that's that's when you could basically start to see some pressure, temporary pressure on on, on the multiple, and perhaps some weakness in the market. Uh, but but not rates. Rates, I think they are they're still very very accommodative, and probably not not much is going to change no, there. generally. Mean- you?
3: I've got the words taper tantrum in my head now. You're telling me that the, the Fed's going to start talking about it in the middle of the summer? That the, the market's not going to handle that well? The, the first inkling that policymakers give to the
8: market that it's thinking about tapering? All bets are off. You know, no, I wouldn't say all bets are off. I think you could definitely see some weakness in the market. It's somewhat of a pullback. But I think between now and then, I think we first need to go through the reopening the second quarter growth uh, uh, story, uh, which I think leads the markets higher, specifically cyclicals. And then at that point, what, what I'm saying is, assuming we get there, the the Fed could actually start to not any lo- any longer neglect the fact that it's too early to taper. It's too early to talk about tapering, and people might start to see that as a as an implicit signal. Wanna... But again, we first need to get there. We're not there. Yeah, no, I,
3: I hear you. I hear you. It's just a matter of when we do get there and how the market reacts to it. Degas, I mean, if the if the Fed starts to signal in the middle of the summer that a taper uh, may be on the near term horizon, how how are you going to handle that as an investor?
6: Well, Scott, I don't think that's going to happen because Jay Powell talked about the unemployment. That's the other goal that he has to focus on because he wants to get that unemployment rate between four and five percent near full employment. I don't think we're going to get the economy there. So I don't, I'm not even concerned about the summer with the the, the uh, uh, with the rising of rates. So we have to first look at the unemployment, and so that's what I'm focused on. So we're actually looking at maybe 2022 between uh, before there's any tightening of the uh, Federal Reserve.
3: Liz Young, you have something for Gibrafco? Uh
1: I mean, my question really. This is something we talked about a little earlier in the show where's the top on the 10-year and what can the market absorb what would you see as even if we continue this kind of broadening out in in the equity market how much of a rate on the 10-year can the equity market absorb
8: look i mean it's, it's it's a tough question it's it's a good question i mean everybody keeps asking that and uh i think every cycle uh you know is is unique in its own ways but again if i had to give an answer i would say Looking at the history, looking at where fundamentals stand right now, looking at things like corporate margins, I would probably say two and a half percent on the ten-year. Uh, anything under that, we should probably be fine. Anything above that is where you start to see pressure on the multiple build. So again, uh, you know, what what what's the view? If the view is that the ten-year yield is going to hit, you know, two and a quarter by the end of this year then we may sort of be there. If, on the other hand, the 10-year the, the is, is, is having a hard time breaking 2%, then that's gonna give more longevity to the, uh, to the equity cycle.
3: Dubrovko, appreciate it. As always, we'll talk to you again soon. I'm sure Thank of that. Dubrovko Lekos, JP Morgan, Chief U.S. Equity Strategist. Up next, big banks getting ready to report earnings this week. We said that at the top, so we'll talk to the number one bank analyst on the street, Mike Mayo, with his preview next. Plus, our experts take their positions on the stocks, which have had a great run into earnings. It raises the pressure, perhaps. We're back after this.
5: Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, Visit ODFL.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises.
1: Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is your CNBC News Update at this hour. The judge in the George Floyd murder case says that he will not sequester the jury. That's after the killing of a black man during a traffic stop just miles from his courthouse. Defense says that jurors could be influenced by protests over that incident. The head of the CDC says that more vaccinations will not help Michigan deal with its current rise in new COVID cases. She says that more immediate ways of slowing infections are needed.
9: When you have an acute situation Um, extraordinary number of cases like we have in Michigan. The answer is not necessarily to give vaccine. In fact, we know that the vaccine will have a delayed response. The answer to that is to really close things
1: down. And a movie starring Will Smith is moving production out of Georgia after the state passed that controversial new election law. The slave drama Emancipation is the first major movie to halt production in Georgia because of the voting legislation. Scott, I'll send it back to you.
3: Hey, Rahel, thank you so much. I want to show you a couple of stocks that are uh, moving right now, NVIDIA and Intel, because the news uh, now is that uh, NVIDIA is reportedly going to make central processing units, CPUs going after Intel. We saw, look at that big jump. Uh, well, it's a 1% jump. It's a $6 jump in NVIDIA. The, the uh, decline in uh, Intel was about 3%. The last I checked, there it is about three and a quarter percent. We got Pete yet with us? All right, we're going to get Pete Najarian, who owns Intel, to come on and, and talk about this. Degas, you own NVIDIA. Uh, Pat Gelsinger's uh, honeymoon at, at Intel may be over uh, because Jensen Wong and uh, NVIDIA coming after them. What do you think about this move?
6: And NVIDIA is a disruptor. Uh, they are uh, making the G-Force chip, and also they have the green data centers. Yep. We like it because also the operating cash flow yield is around 4% but the, um, the return on assets is right around 17% with great EPS stability. And so this company is doing all the things right. It's being a disruptor in this industry and we really like it. And it's one of our best performing stocks.
3: All right, so Pete Najarian uh, is with us now. Uh, Pete, you're on the phone, right? Yes, sir. Yep. So just give me your, your, your quick reaction to, to the, the news in, in and of itself everybody's been really optimistic about Pat Gelsinger, right? The, the new CEO at Intel, who incidentally was just on tech check uh, at the top of the last hour. Uh, mm-hmm. What does this do now? If, if NVIDIA is going to come after this part of Intel's business?
0: Well, I'm not I'm not necessarily completely shocked. It makes some sense that they would want to get more uh, competitive in other areas than they already are already presently in. And as was just mentioned, they're a disruptor. So there's no, I don't know that I've, view this as something other than at some point in time they were going to do this and go in this direction. But let's not forget that if you take a look at Intel and you look at where that stock has gone just in the last, you know, even year to date from 50 to 65, trading in the 66 area now, it's uh, it's had a great run. And and um, and I think that they are up for the challenge and will be very, very competitive going forward. And it's, they will be fa- facing other competitors as well. And obviously with with Nvidia coming after them, um, like I say, I don't know that that's shocking, and it was just a matter of when not uh, not if
3: It just underscores though, doesn't it Pete, how much pressure uh, mm-hmm. Intel and Gelsinger are under to to turn around the the business and become quote unquote relevant uh, again that it's not going to be the easiest task out there, right no
0: yes you're you're hundred percent right. I think you're spot on. I think that the, the pressure is on and uh, I think Gelsinger will, will be able to respond very rapidly and, and, and meet a lot of what's going on in terms of the competitive side of things. But that is what CEOs are paid to do. That's what, you know, that's why they brought in Pat. He's, the, he's the guy who I think fits. And if you were going to have somebody at Intel that was going to have to battle uh, folks from all different directions, where, whether it's the AMPs of the world or, or obviously Nvidia and others, I think he is the right guy for the challenge. So we already know what, what he's already said that he's going to be doing and already working on doing as, as a company itself to, to grow much faster and get after things and be somebody who's um, going to be a part of some of the other companies in terms of some of the, uh, the, 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 the building out. So there's a lot of different things working here that I think will work in their favor, and the competition, I think, will be greeted, and I think Intel is up for it.
3: All right. So you 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 have no sort of second thoughts about about being a a shareholder and a supportive one. Uh, You know, I've thrown a lot of stuff at you of of late about Intel, and you don't seem to waver Mm -hmm. at all.
0: No. And and as a matter of fact, when you look, you know, one of the things that that stands out for me is like just what we're seeing today from uh, the Nuance acquisition from uh, Microsoft. I think what what you're seeing is. Those that have balance sheets, those that uh, trade at what I think are very fair value, and when you look at the fundamental side of things, when you look at total cash and debt and and the cash flows and so forth, just take a long look uh, at that balance sheet that you're looking at when you take a look at Intel, and you can see why I think that they've got, financially, they are in position to be able to be very, very competitive with absolutely anybody and everybody. And uh, with the right people in charge, I think that they're up for the challenge.
3: Yeah, AMD looking at that now, down a couple of percentage points as NVIDIA uh, seems to be at least the day's winner thus far. uh, Just half past 12 uh, in the east on this news. Pete, thanks for uh, coming to the phone as fast as you could. Calling in, I really wanted to get your opinion on this. I know it was meaningful to our viewers, too. So thank you. We'll talk to you again soon.
0: I really appreciate that, Scott. Thank you. Take care. All
3: right, Pete, you be well all right let's talk about bank earnings they kick i should also let you know for pardon me just one second again that that semi-summit the semiconductor summit the uh, virtual summit with all the ceos is going on as this news uh is breaking and we may hear from the president this hour as well who was expected to pop into that as well if we do of course you'll hear it uh right here first all right bank earnings they kick off this week expectations especially high as we've already said given the run in those stocks mike mayo of wells fargo security he is the number one ranked analyst in that space he joins us there live. It's good to see you again. I mean, that, that that's the story now, right? These stocks have run and they've run a lot and rates are up and they're up, you know, f- pretty substantially in the quarter. So what does that mean now for these earnings?
9: Well, look, first of all, it's on all the framing. Uh, banks have performed phenomenally over the last year and year to date, well outpacing uh, the S&P 500, but they've still underperformed by, you know, over 15 percentage points since the start of last year. So there's still more to go with the catch-up trade for banks. That's the key message. And yes, the stocks have run up before these earnings. Scott, you asked me the same question three months ago before the fourth quarter earnings. And yes, the stocks sold off. And then they went on to reach new 52-week highs. So, uh, you know, our one-year targets are still significantly higher than where they are currently. And you know, Some of this is baked in the numbers. You saw what happened uh, with the results at Jefferies. Jefferies beat consensus by double, and the, the stock sold off and underperformed. So some of the strong capital market strength is there already in the stocks, but it's not reflecting this better yield curve, the potential for better loan growth, the potential for better spread revenues, and the potential for the industry to head toward the best efficiency in its history over the next several years. Why over the past month are most of these stocks down? Well, people are starting to say exactly what you just said. These stocks have run. Everybody wants to you know, date bank stocks. They don't want to marry the bank stocks. And I, I think bank stocks are good for a long-term relationship. It's just been so long that banks have sustained that outperformance that uh, you almost have a, a generation, generation of investors that seem to underappreciate the structural bull case for banks. And to me, that's the greatest opportunity.
3: I'm going through, you know, you have overweight ratings on on every major bank except for Morgan Stanley, which you have an equal rate rating and and 80 bucks. The best one of the group continues to be. You tell me.
9: Well, I, I said at the start of the year, Bank of America is our number one pick Uh, They are about four times more sensitive to higher interest rates. And what I love about Bank America and the CEO, Brian Moynihan, he's like, hey, if we get extra revenues because of the yield curve, uh, we're still going to have tremendous expense control. So when you talk about efficiency, you're seeing it at Bank America. And when you're talking about fintech, Bank America is one of the best fintech players on the planet with their digital banking. So you have cost control, you have technology, and this quarter will be the low point, we think, for their traditional banking revenues, down 16% year-over-year. So it's it's not a good quarter when it comes to that, but this is the inflection point. Well, l- l- let me ask you this, because you, you mentioned FinTech,
3: and Jamie Dimon, in his letter last week, mentioned FinTech and the threat that it is. So you tell me, if I've got all this money, and I want to invest it in the sector. Why should I invest it with a JP Morgan Bank of America, Goldman or Morgan Stanley and not with a PayPal or Square? Don't I want to skate to where the puck is going? Isn't that the saying? Not where it's been.
9: Hey, Scott, you asked me the same question uh, three and six months ago, and it's a fair question. Yeah, but I'm looking but... at
3: the performance and, uh, and the performance in PayPal and Square is off the charts. Not that the yeah, banks but... are, are any slouches, but, but these have kicked their butt.
9: I mean, in the. Right now, the the PE of the banking industry versus the the S&P 500 is 60%. The long-term average is 70%. So you have below-average valuations, and at the same time, you have upward earnings revisions uh, for banks of 18% over the last three months versus 6% for the S&P 500. So you have cheaper stocks, upward earnings revisions, and faster absolute earnings growth, we forecast over the next three years. And then you have a structural bull case where the pandemic has forced customer behavior to change, and that's leading to more digital banking um, and a structural rethink on how banks deliver their products to customers. So you have a a cyclical bull case, you have a structural bull case, and you have a a 66-page letter from Jamie Dimon, his longest CEO letter in history, his most bullish CEO letter in history, saying that he expects a boon over the next three years. So, you know, the the listeners and you may or may not, you know, sell the banks on these earnings. They may have underperformed some here in the last several weeks. But if you look out over the next three years and you believe Jamie Dimon, who's traditionally very conservative, then there's a long way to go with these bank stocks.
3: Mike Mayo, we'll make that the last word. Thank you for your time as always. We'll see you again soon. Joe Terranova, you bought B of A again.
5: I did. I went back into B of A. Uh, Mike mentioned rentals versus owning these names for the long term Uh, i have been utilizing some of the money center banks as a rental i was in msci uh, purchased that about a month ago rang the register on that was able to achieve about a nine percent return on that coming back into bank of america i mentioned before i think the income uh, that's going to be derived from fees both on the underwriting of SPACs and from the refinancing of mortgage is going to be very strong and i think the reserve release ultimately is going to lead To a scenario where you're going to see capital allocation strategies being aligned with the shareholder once again in coming quarters. That's the reason to go back into Bank of America.
3: Bank is the best uh, over the last three months, 19 percent. Steve Weiss, I know you own it, too. I can't come to you this moment. I got to take a quick break. But you've also been a big fan of Brian Moynihan. You've called him the most underrated CEO of the sector. You do own that stock. Up next, the big ETFs to watch ahead of Coinbase's IPO this week. We'll show you the S&P sectors, though, before we take that quick break. Go to the wall. is leading s and flat. We're back in two.
6: What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member
1: SIPC.
10: B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. That is linkedin.com slash report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash report and get started.
7: And Bob here. S&P has just turned positive. Welcome to the ETF portion of Halftime Report. The pending Coinbase direct listing this Wednesday is exciting. An unusually broad base of investors outside of the crypto community, particularly the ETF community. To explain why, let's talk with Matt Hogan. He's the chief investment officer of Bitwise Asset Management, which pioneered the first cryptocurrency index fund. And Christian Magoon, who runs the Amplify Transformation data sharing ETF. That's BLOK. That's an actively managed portfolio focusing on blockchain technology. Matt, you have said Coinbase is the asset that the crypto community has been waiting for. It's the giant asset that is going to dramatically broaden the base of crypto assets, crypto investors, crypto ETFs. Why is this so
11: special? It's so special, Bob, because for the last five years, traditional investors have been sort of closing their eyes and holding their breath And pretending that the crypto industry doesn't exist, it's largely succeeded because even though Bitcoin has been the best performing asset in the world in the past one, three, five and ten years, it's taken place behind a sort of crypto wall. What Coinbase is going to do is tear down that wall and investors are going to have to reckon with a crypto exchange that's larger by market capitalization than Nasdaq. That's larger by market capitalization than the New York Stock Exchange. They're going to have to reckon with a crypto industry that's much bigger, more developed and more institutional than they thought. And that's going to be good for crypto stocks. And it's also going to be good for direct holdings of crypto assets.
7: Yeah. Bigger than Nasdaq. I mean, Christian, you said there will be a land rush by the ETF community to own Coinbase. Will you be buying it for your block ETF? Who else will likely be owners? Yeah I expect we will Bob. We have
12: about twenty seven percent of blocks portfolio in the transactional infrastructure of crypto and blockchain. So these are custodians payment facilitators exchanges. So Coinbase should fit into that sleeve. I think Kathy Wood and the art team will be buying this for their ETFs probably the innovation ETF as well as the fintech ETF. We should see IPO ETFs pick this up. So I think we could see over a dozen ETFs own uh, Coinbase
7: over the next I'd say month to two months. And a lot of new ones coming in as well. Thanks, guys. Tune in to ETF Edge at 1 p.m. Eastern time when Matt and Christian tell us more about why Coinbase will be the game-changing digital asset the investors have been waiting for and the ETF business has been waiting for. Tim Seymour, who runs the Amplify Seymour Cannabis ETF, will update us on pot ETFs. Guess what? Pot ETFs, the best-performing ETF asset class of the year. That's ETFedge.cnbc.com. Halftime, back right after this. And Bob Pisani here. S&P has just turned positive. Welcome to the ETF portion of Halftime Report. The pending Coinbase direct listing this Wednesday is exciting an unusually broad base of investors outside of the crypto community, particularly the ETF community. To explain why, let's talk with Matt Hogan. He's the chief investment officer of Bitwise Asset Management, which pioneered the first cryptocurrency index fund. And Christian Magoon, who runs the Amplify Transformation data-sharing ETF. That's BLOK. That's an actively managed portfolio focusing on blockchain technology. Matt, you have said Coinbase is the asset that the crypto community has been waiting for. It's the giant asset that is going to dramatically broaden the base of crypto assets, crypto investors, crypto ETFs. Why is this so special?
11: It's so special, Bob, because for the last five years, traditional investors have been sort of closing their eyes and holding their breath and pretending that the crypto industry doesn't exist. It's largely succeeded because even though Bitcoin has been the best performing asset in the world in the past one, three, five, and 10 years, it's taken place behind a sort of crypto wall. What Coinbase is going to do is tear down that wall and investors are gonna have to reckon with a crypto exchange that's larger by market capitalization than NASDAQ, that's larger by market capitalization than the New York Stock Exchange, They're going to have to reckon with a crypto industry that's much bigger, more developed and more institutional than they thought. And that's going to be good for crypto stocks. And it's also going to be good for direct holdings of crypto assets.
7: Yeah. Bigger than Nasdaq. I mean, Christian, you said there will be a land rush by the ETF community to own Coinbase. Will you be buying it for your block ETF? Who else will likely be owners? Yeah,
12: I expect we will, Bob. We have about 27% of Block's portfolio in the transactional infrastructure of crypto and blockchain. So these are custodians, payment facilitators, exchanges. So Coinbase should fit into that sleeve. I think Kathy Wood and the ARC team will be buying this for their ETFs, probably the innovation ETF, as well as the fintech ETF. We should see IPO ETFs pick this up. So I think we could see over a dozen ETFs
7: own uh, Coinbase over the next, I'd say, month to two months. And a lot of new ones coming in as well. Thanks, guys. Tune in to ETF Edge at 1 p.m. Eastern time when Matt and Christian tell us more about why Coinbase will be the game-changing digital asset the investors have been waiting for and the ETF business has been waiting for. Tim Seymour, who runs the Amplify Seymour Cannabis ETF, will update us on pot ETFs. Guess what? Pot ETFs, the best-performing ETF asset class of the year. That's ETFedge.cnbc.com. Halftime, back right after this.
3: There you go S&P has turned positive barely but it's a new record 412938 is where it currently sits let's talk about some moves gang Steve Weiss TPI Composites the ticker's TPIC you bought it tell us
4: Yeah this is a great company under the radar only two major firms following some regional firms what they do is they make composites and actually if you take that further into their products They make the blades for windmills. Outside China, they've got 30% market share. Including China, they've got 13% global share. But it's also an EV play, not just for cars, but for buses, which are actually adopting EVs faster than anybody else, but also delivery vans. They make the chassis, plus they also make the doors. So it's a very light component. They will be a leader in the EV construction. And as we know what's happening with windmills, you don't need... Biden's plan to drive growth here. So it's going to go from losing money last year to earning about 180, 160 this year. And next year, you're going to see it earning about 230. You'll see revenues growing 25, 30 percent over the next few years. Then we'll take there. So it's an extremely cheap, underfollowed clean energy play that's actually making money and doing very, very well.
3: Degas, you bought more CDW and sold ChemEd.
6: Yeah, so we sold ChetNet because um, it has two different uh, business lines. One is the uh, VITAS Hospice Care, and the other is the roto Plumbing. And so during the pandemic, the hospice care revenues really hit hard. The outlooks lowered, and so we said we can redeploy the capital into a company like CDW. It actually makes the uh, technology products and services servicing the uh, local governments and schools. And so what we really like about um, CDW is that, one, it has a really good operating cash flow yield of about 10%. We like the profitability because it has a return on assets about 16% stable uh, EPS. And so we also like the fact that its uh, EPS growth is going to be around 8%. So once again, a good, strong company in a space that we really like and that's going to benefit from the investment into local governments and schools.
3: Okay. Joe Terranova. You did not score in Score Media. Tell us what happened. No,
5: I I certainly did not. Um, On February 16th, Score Media traded $45. There was a significant pullback to where you had a spike low on March 5th at 1850. I got too aggressive. I reached for it. I didn't uh, incorporate any patience into the timing of entering. I bought it above $25. I endured a 15% loss, which you know me, Scott, I normally don't like to do. I like to mitigate uh, risk at all times. How to get out of the stock. I was stopped out of it. Doesn't change the fundamental story of the stock, but it looks positioned now to challenge that March 5th low uh, at around 1860. And I'm not going to be there when it does.
3: All right. Better news, though, for you in, in Uber, record gross bookings for March. You're in that stock. Absolutely. Delivery, that has been the life preserver,
5: so to speak, while we've waited for mobility to come back. Delivery year on a year up over 150%. Uber Eats, the acquisition of Drizzly, that's all contributing. Mobility is coming back actually faster. What does that mean? That means the story regarding adjusted EBITDA profitability uh, being achieved in 2021 is going to occur faster than we thought. So I think Uber is a stock that's going to trade ultimately into the 70s. I think it's somewhere around 61 right now. Very happy with the position. And I probably would add if it uh, was able to break out above its previous all-time high at 65.
3: You also, Liz, sort of view this in the very same way, right? Delivery being a Band-Aid before mobility comes back, and it's coming back.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think delivery plugged the hole in the side of the ship while we went through this. But as things start to pick up again, I mean, I'm already having the, the experience in New York City. I try to call an Uber. Sometimes it takes up to 10 minutes. That's a long time in Manhattan. So I think there's going to be more drivers on the road. There's going to be more riders in the cars. And it's only going to increase as we move through summer.
3: Oh, the nerve, waiting 10 minutes for an Uber. <laughs>
1: I know, <laughs> I'm <back>. so spoiled.
3: <laughs> that says a lot about a lot. All right, we'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll do final trades next. It's time now for final trades. All right. Ten minutes for an Uber. Liz Young.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I am looking at leisure and entertainment. I think people are chomping at the bit to get back out there. And those are two of the things that they missed the most.
3: Give me 20 seconds on your new gig at SoFi. Tell us about it.
1: 20 seconds. Uh, I am building out the investment strategy function, adding it to the lineup of SoFi functions. And our biggest mission is to help people get their money right. And teaching them how to invest is a big part of that.
3: All right. Good for you. Congrats again. Degas, final trade. Thank
1: you.
6: Yes, Afrinol, it is an example of a GARP technology. It does the fiber optics interconnectors. We really like the company valuations around operating cash flow yield of about 9%. And the forecasted EPS is at 15%. Great company. All right. Steve Weiss.
4: Moderna, they have a vaccine day on Wednesday. Just two events that came out recently. Number one, on HIV, which killed 700,000 people globally in 2019, 97% of the recipients in the trial showed an increase in antibodies. That's positive. Also, you had Yerb come out and say, hey, if you're taking AstraZeneca, right. you should get a Moderna or a Pfizer second boost. Okay. So, tremendous company. You'll see this All do right. well. Joe, winter.
3: give me a name. Sorry, Steve. We've got to go. Sorry. NVIDIA. Big All deal. Right. All right. That's for a final trade, not like a whole like, book report. Steve Weiss, thank you very much. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC.
10: You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to
3: order yours today.